Welcome to an action-packed Greater Finance episode about Ethereum. My name is Alex and I'm your host today. With us we got Igor Mandrigin, a blockchain researcher that knows all about Ethereum. Igor has a background working with Ethereum-related projects and is currently helping the Ethereum Foundation by bringing his expertise to the table. Igor sees the potential Ethereum has and is keen to help make that potential a reality. In this episode, me and Igor starts to talk about what Ethereum is and how it works before we move into the hot topic of DeFi, or decentralized finance, and how it introduces a new paradigm that might challenge finance as we know it today. We also get into the scaling discussion and bring up sidechain and layer 2s, where Igor gives some technical clues in how it really works under the hoods. We wrap it all up by looking into the future, where Ethereum 2.0 is waiting to be implemented with proof-of-stake and charting. There are a lot of valuable content in this episode, where Igor's strong technical background comes into play. I learned a lot, and I hope that you will too. With that said, let's go meet Igor. All right, Igor, great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. So many people are interested to hear more about who Igor is. Can you please give Uh, us the background of Igor? Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, I have an engineering background and I've been uh, in in an IT space for quite a lot of years, uh, like way over 10 years. And for the last, I think, four years, I'm very deep into crypto space, uh, mostly into Ethereum. So right now I'm trying to launch my own startup. Before that, I spent uh, a year and a half or something on the, in the Ethereum Foundation, mostly working on the Ethereum nodes on the current mainnet and also on the state growth problem, like because the nodes are getting bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier, harder to run. Before that, I've been working at Status, which is sort of a decentralized messengers with a wallet on also the Ethereum blockchain. And uh, before that, I spent quite a lot of years at Opera, the browser maker, <laughs> just working on both mobile browser as well as like our R&D products, uh, like FinTech, for instance, uh, and uh, yeah, news and other things. Yeah, you got a really relevant background to talk about Ethereum then. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> let's get into today's topic, which is Ethereum. And uh, let me start by asking you a, a very general question, but a very relevant one. What is Ethereum? Yeah, so basically we can start with uh, how it all started. And it started all started with Bitcoin like a while ago after the financial crisis. There was this uh, first block probably was mined over the Bitcoin. And essentially the Bitcoin was mostly made for transferring value around and plus a little bit of advanced functionality on top of that just to make sure that let's say if you have an organization that want to use it so it's not that a single person can transfer all the money of the organization you can set up a lock so only like a couple of people who signed the transaction can send it but it's all about like transferring value from one place to another and then uh, later than uh, that there was an idea that okay uh, it's cool but you cannot really build like a financial services on top of this apart from the super basic ones. So then there was this idea of Ethereum that essentially was like, okay, what if we make a full programming language on the blockchain? Uh, and uh, 
back then, I think the idea was that, oh, we'll, we see that there are contracts that people sign in real life and they look a lot like the code. So we'll do this thing called smart contracts that we essentially will write those contracts in code and then publish them on the blockchain and then they'll be immutable and they will be forced to be executed because all the payments will go through the blockchain. But it turns out that it it can do a lot more. <laughs> so basically you can build a whole financial system on top of the blockchain uh, that essentially nobody, no single entity controls and that's uh, very well inter- interacting with each other, those pieces. Those are called like DeFi in the current terms, right? Uh, and they're perfectly interactable, like they even call them like a money Legos. So yeah, essentially it's a, it's a blockchain that not only can transfer value, but it's also a full kind of a programmable money. That's, that's why probably it's a good phrase for it. Programmable money. Yeah, that makes sense. I also hear that one a lot when talking with Bitcoiners, programmable money, but as I understand yeah. it, and as you describe it there, Ethereum is much more expressive. You can do so much more with Ethereum than you can do with Bitcoin. Yes, at least on Ethereum, like, of course, you can just write, a, you can just plug a, a Bitcoin blockchain into a, like a normal financial service and write everything outside the blockchain and just do transactions through Bitcoin. But then you still have to trust this institution. What difference is uh, on the Ethereum is that you write software on Ethereum itself with all the security guarantees and decentralization guarantees that comes with that. That's very interesting because I think decentralization, as you are talking about here, if you are using Ethereum for so much data and um, as you talked about here, the nodes are getting mm-hmm. so big, isn't that a yeah. danger, dangerous thing for the Ethereum network that the nodes are being too heavy to run? Uh, it is. They are yet not too heavy to run <laughs> and we are making sure that long term they will be uh, still possible to run. But of course, if we do will do nothing like Ethereum. Basically, the initial idea on Ethereum was, okay, but technology moves forward. And of course, no blockchain will ever grow faster than the storage space (laughs) on the computers. And uh, then the whole this uh, ICO bubble happened. And right now it's like a lot of DeFi services. So nobody expected that. So nobody expected this growth, uh, essentially, because they thought, oh, it's like we'll grow linearly or more or less. And then we'll be always behind the hardware so you just every couple of years you buy a newer computer and you can still run an old because it has like twice more storage and it's fine so right now it is a a little bit of a danger we are far away from really being like uh, seriously endangered by it because let's put it like this if you want to run a fully functional ethereum node yourself you still can do it on your like normal pc if you want to run so-called archive node yourself so be like an archive org for for all ethereum uh, then it takes like about a couple of terabytes of space storage to run, but uh, the normal mode is still under a terabyte. So, but it's growing. So we are trying to make sure that there are advanced techniques on how to make sure that <laughs> that it doesn't grow too too far. What are the danger with them growing too big? Yeah, basically it's a centralization danger. So at some point only the, I don't know, Amazons and Googles and pe- people with a, a lot of money would be able to run it. It's a little bit like, again, if we're returning to like mining probably situation right now that to actually earn money on mining, 
you, you need to buy a very good <laughs> hardware, right? And not everybody can afford it. Like we are recording this in Sweden. It's a good economical, from the economical standpoint, a good country. So here you can buy a lot of things and people can afford. If we look at like South America or like Africa or some Asian countries, uh, the, the prices are prohibitively high. So yeah, basically it's, it's against the core idea of Ethereum that anybody can run the node and uh, yeah, support the network this way uh, or inc increase security of the network as well. So do you believe then with the technical, technical progress that's, that we're seeing, do you think it will be possible for everyone in the world to run their own node in the future? Or do you think it's going to be some kind of centralization, but still decentralized enough for not a single entity to control the whole network? Yeah, I think I would uh, I would bet on the second one. Uh, I I don't think that it's plausible, especially if we're looking at. So the issue right now is not that much of the like parameters of your computers, but on the connectivity, and uh, less and less people are running desktops. Like a lot of people are just on mobile or laptops, and that's not an ideal environment to run a node. Of course, you can still just run it on like a, a relatively like on the higher end version of Raspberry Pi at at your apartment. But uh, I think it's like uh, no, like tech enthusiast will do that, but not uh, like normal people, quote unquote. So I think there will still be a little bit of a centralized around some areas, but uh, it's not one company or not one country that will. Okay, so so the storage to... aspect then, because you mentioned connectivity is the problem. Is is the storage, yeah. is the size of the blockchain a problem in itself, or will that easily be? Will it be, no. for, for me, can I store the Ethereum blockchain or is it a connectivity problem that will be? Yeah, basically it's, it's not that hard to store the current state of the blockchain so-called. So, uh, but if you want to store the whole history, that becomes a problem. So for you to store the current uh, state of the blockchain, I think it's, it's under 100 gigs. So it can feel, fit into my two years old iPhone, for instance. Well, a relatively expensive iPhone, but still. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you want to store the whole history, so all changes between all the blocks uh, in the blockchain, all like 13 or 14 millions of them, that uh, requires quite a lot of work. That's very interesting because you are talking about this. I, I hear you mention it all the time here. So the full node versus the archival node. Yeah. I mean, in, the, like... Bitcoin, in the Bitcoin community, I hear people say like, you cannot run a full node in Ethereum. And then the Ethereum say, yes, you can. This is a full node. You can verify the state. You don't yeah. have to do all the computations to like running an archival node is not needed. While Bitcoiners say, if you really want it to become a trustless system, you have to run an archival node. I have no clue there. Uh, do you know, <laughs> can you explain the difference? So, there? So, yeah. So, so... So what Ethereum community calls a full node, it's it's not just the current state, it's the current state plus history, but this history is limited. So it's just last year, let's say, of history, but not all years of Ethereum existence. It still goes through the whole of the blockchain, it still validates everything, but then it's, as soon as it goes forward, it's throw away the oldest entries. So it goes forward, throw away, so it adds a new block, and then it removes the latest one. So uh there is some uh some logic in what uh, the bitcoin people are saying of course so ideally everybody would be able to run an archival node and that's uh, more or less about data availability problem but if we are talking from the practical standpoint right now uh 
uh, you know, if, if we take in like the first couple of years uh, of Ethereum, there was nothing there. <laughs> like it's no real activity. If you look at all the smart contracts that are already uh, in place right now, like a lot of them are, they appeared last year or last couple of years or something like this. So uh, there are some ideas about how to solve this issue about like, let's say, getting expiration dates for this contract. So we still can, can have the whole history, all, all history for all the active contracts. So if, for instance, you have theoretically one account or something that was active or a contract that was active from the first block and until the last, you will have the full history for it. But if somebody just stopped using something and then a year passed, then only special archivals uh, will essentially hold it. So it's uh, it's a balance between practicality and, uh, of course, uh, yeah, some a little bit of an idea that everything should be just trust fully trustless. Yeah, it feels like how do you really define a full node? Is the is the thing here? <laughs> More than yeah, that. it is like uh, because in Ethereum, basically, there are three types of nodes. There is a light node. That one <clears throat> just trusts others to verify the network for it, but it just gives you an access to the network, and you can send transactions and you can read the state. But it requires others to work. And there is a full node that that again, it doesn't store the whole history, but it does everything. So you don't need anything apart from this full node to to work. And then there is an archival node that's in case you want to see some data from, again, four years ago or something like this. All right, all right. Yeah, I, I think we have to to see where this goes. I really enjoy following the Twitter conversations and see how it's so much hate there between Bitcoiners and Ethereans. <laughs> well, it's uh, I, I think like what I noticed that's, uh, again, it's my take. It's not an official position of any any company that I was affiliated with. But uh, a lot of people who actually understand what's going on, they have way more trust and way more kind of a, they, they can speak to each other normally. But then there are these people who sort of think that they understand how things are going. But it's like becomes a little bit of like a, like a religion for them. And I don't enjoy those, like talking to those people. It's, it's very hard to reason with them uh, from that, both that's sides. Basically, that's basically my Twitter feed and their religious ones. Yeah. <laughs> so according to you, do you think most talents are working on Ethereum or Bitcoin? I know more developers are working on Ethereum right now, but the most talented ones, do you see them in the Ethereum world or in the Bitcoin world? I, I, I have no idea. I think some work, some work on both, some work on, on one of them. I don't, I can't compare. There's like a vast majority of developers are on the uh, on the Ethereum world, so I think, and there's way more activity. So just by the sheer, like, if you take a random distribution, I think the probability is higher than the more talented are in, in Ethereum, just because there are more developers. <laughs> but I, I have no data to back that in. I really like some of the projects that are using Bitcoin, like Casa Wallet, for instance. Uh, I think they have a tremendous team out there. Uh, but then, of course, Ethereum has a lot of like, let's say. The core dev teams and the East two teams and uh, like some of the DeFi teams, things like Status or MetaMask or Brave. I mean, there's lots of people doing very cool things there. It feels much easier to use Ethereum-related applications or like communicating with the Ethereum blockchain than the mm. Bitcoin blockchain, from my own experience. 
So it might be. I think Ethereum definitely has better UX people. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> so I, I think it's pretty cool, as you mentioned there in the beginning, that the Ethereum came up with their own program program language. Programming mm -hmm. language. It's is it Solidity? Uh, well. The language is the virtual machine is called EVM and it's as kind of an assembly language. But then, of course, nobody wants to write assembly. <laughs> so then there were a couple of languages built on top of this. Uh, I think there was like Solidity. There was some oh, I forgot a Wiper, I think, or something like this. Uh, and then there was uh, uh, LLL, which is low-level language, which is essentially an assembly. But right now, to be honest, like everybody just does Solidity because it's it's became a de facto standard for smart contracts. And not only on Ethereum. Like uh, I'm looking at new blockchains that are coming into space. A lot of them, they they just at some point they wanted to do like uh, web assembly. And everybody was talking that, okay, WebAssembly is our future. But it looks like that right now there are so many Solidity developers who know how to do smart contracts. So even the new chains, they don't uh, attempt to invent something new. They, they try to do Solidity or Solidity compiler, at least, to their own infrastructure. Okay, so you use this programming language to communicate with the EVM, basically, then, the Ethereum virtual yep. engine. Yep. What does the EVM doing? The, the Ethereum virtual ma machine, what's its role in the Ethereum blockchain? Yeah, it's uh, basically whenever you are uh, running a transaction. So let's say you can send a couple of types of transactions on uh, Ethereum. One is very basic. You just send money from ETH specifically from point A to point B. And that doesn't really include EVM. That just checks that you have enough money. <laughs> And then then other address, uh, and then it's valid, and, and yada yada yada. The gas is right, and you can sense the transaction. But then you can either deploy a smart contract, or you can call methods on on smart contracts. And then uh, if you're deploying a smart contract uh, for both of these, basically EVM uh, updates everything. So so it's like. EVM. What EVM can do essentially, apart from basic logic, it can change uh, or transfer money between accounts essentially and it also can store some data in some it's called storage uh, tree it, it can store any data essentially so you have essentially uh, money transfer capabilities plus you have uh, ability to store some arbitrary data at, at some addresses so for instance if you look at tokens which is the most interesting part right because they run on evm so any token on top of ethereum essentially uh, both non-fungible and fungible uh, they are all some solidity code that's running there and in a very very basic way like if you know some basic programming so a token is a registry of uh, account and its uh, amount of tokens that it has <laughs> and that's it <laughs> and then there is a function about how to transfer from one to another so when you want to transfer from one to another then essentially what it does it looks in this registry and see okay this user actually has enough tokens to transfer to another and then just an adds another entry to this registry that's okay these tokens are now here and we subtract tokens from from another and basically uh, it might be way more complicated than that because there are some security implications there are some governance implications but the gist of it is, is like this so almost anything except ETH transfers is basically made through solidity code or through evm code essentially okay okay and the whole thing you just explained there has basically enabled a new paradigm to take place i'm thinking of DeFi. yeah 
how things have progressed inside Ethereum. And now you see DeFi applications building on top of Ethereum. And it's some crazy volume up there. I've seen yeah. stats that there have been more value transacted on top of Ethereum than on the New York Stock Exchange That's for true. certain periods, not like every day, I guess, but certain periods. And uh, why do you think why do you think DeFi became like the primary app on top of Ethereum? Well, I mean, I know that's what helped it to become like this, but I don't know why it became because probably yeah, <laughs> people just were a little bit fed up with the non-accessible loans and non-accessible financial services. Let's say if you want to buy, if I want to buy like stocks, like from Sweden, I can buy quite a lot of stocks from different countries, like in, in other countries. But let's say some people, again, in other countries, like uh, in in South America or something, they don't have access to a lot of stock exchanges. And, and even like loan capabilities are limited in countries like, I don't know, Nigeria or Kenya. Uh, and uh, But what helped it to grow is that Ethereum was, I think, smart enough to not only provide uh, programming language, but to also work a little bit with standards and standardizing things. So each token that I described to you is essentially it's a standard. It, it's a, it's a set of requirements on how your code should look like to be considered a token. So that's why there is this sort of uh, network effect of uh, DeFi services, where not only services can exist on top of Ethereum, but they can exist on top of each other, which mm -hmm. is very cool. Because if you know that Maker, uh, let's say they have a stable coin and that this is a token, then you can write a code to transfer this token <laughs> yourself so you can plug into maker so this is like essentially documented or more or less documented api for everybody and of course the second thing is that the whole community from the blockchain and that's not ethereum's uh, thing it's probably started from with bitcoin is everything is open source so not only you can work with some kind of a stable coin or your kind of DeFi service but you also can look at how they do stuff so the innovation spreads way, way quicker. Whenever somebody has a smart like implementation of something, it just gets, it spreads like fire <laughs> on the whole uh, services. Yeah, for me, it's a bit like if you think of the traditional wor world, you have like JP Morgan building like the base layer. And on top of there, you might have Revolut building. Mm -hmm. they, they don't have to build something there themselves, but they just like putting themselves as Lego on top of JP Morgan. And then you yeah. have another maybe peer-to-peer -peer lending um, option on top of mm -hmm. Revolut and they just utilize all the capital and liquidity and yep. all the opportunities provided by the by JP Morgan and Revolut. And yeah, that's why uh, that was very important. One of the first big DeFi services were exactly that. It was lending and uh, liquidity pools. Because again, when a, you need access to a liquidity pool to make a financial service. I remember like that's a while ago, there was an attempt even in Sweden to standardize the fintech API because I coming I'm coming from this fintech space. I remember this SAB was publishing some standard papers on the APIs, but still, if you want to make an account there, even to toy, like you need to file a lot of papers and and, and stuff. So it's and in uh, Ethereum, that's essentially yeah permissionless. You just you know the address of the contract, and you can fiddle with it. <laughs> uh, nobody can stop you. Exactly, and that's the power of a permissionless system that cannot be shut down, right? Yeah. But how will how will this work with all regulations? I mean, regulators will become interested. You, you've seen Bitcoin in the past, how they tried to regulate it. I mm -hmm. mean, they might have not, maybe they cannot control it on the protocol level, but they can 
definitely control it on the on-ramps and off-ramps. So if you want to yep. get into Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin to fiat currency, they can kind of deny you that. Yep. How will this play out in, in DeFi? Will it happen there as well? Or will everyone <laughs> who wants to get a loan in the world get a loan? Or, I mean, well, it's, it's, very, uh, it's a very course. good question because I have no idea. Again, I, I assume that there could be a range of possibilities. I mean, the absolute worst case scenario is when uh, basically this becomes illegal and punishable. Uh, like and if somebody learns that you have crypto, you just go to jail like in all the world or something like this. And then people just panic exiting this. Uh, but then most likely scenario, I think that's, yeah, the on-ramps and off-ramps is, will be the exact uh, place where the regulations will be. And uh, I think we are right now in sort of the wild west slash perfect uh, crypt, like what's it called, like crypto punk uh, present where like you essentially have almost zero regulations. Nobody can stop you. You can just buy ETH uh, with a lot of services, <laughs> like basically not in, even like in, in, especially a lot of them are not in, in Europe. Uh, and that, that's one thing that's also interesting because it's globalized the whole finance. So even if like, let's say Europe made a regulation about that you are not allowed to buy crypto in Europe, uh, nobody stops you from using like a service in Vietnam <laughs> mm. to do that or, or something like this. And it's... Uh, it's very hard to track afterwards, but I think what could happen is that banks will finally wake up and will just, and I see them waking up like all traditional fintech services, and they will just try to make you a very nice UX on top of, uh, of the blockchain and making sure that you feel safe and secure, and then just uh, make sure that you work through them. <laughs> So then uh, they will comply with the regulations and stuff. They may, may deny and censor everything they want because you will not actually own your money. They will own it on behalf of you. Like they, they'll have a custody on it. That's also is happening. So we'll see what how it goes. Like uh, I don't know. Yeah, I feel the crypto ethos is pretty strong here. <laughs> that you can yeah. own your own money and not have the bank. Owning, well, it's it's, it's a you. big question if you want to have a uh, want to have a bank or not. Do, do you want to be your own bank or not? It's like it's very easy again to tell about this uh, to talk about this in Sweden or in Switzerland or like yeah, in general in, in some countries where uh, your uh, your house will not get uh, mugged uh, because somebody knows and and nobody will actually torture you <laughs> to to tell the the signing phrase. And in some countries, uh, it's it's not as good as that. So I think still, if you have enough money, uh, there will be some demand. But it will just democratize who who can be a bank. Uh, essentially, right now it's it's almost impossible to become a bank from the street. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, but all this li- all these licenses needed, etc. I, I understand mm-hmm. that it's very hard. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's very interesting to talk about Ethereum, but you do have other competitors as well trying to do kind of a similar thing as Ethereum is doing. You have Binance Smart Chain, you have Solana, mm-hmm. you have Cardano, etc. No. Why is Ethereum so interesting? Or do you even think that other blockchains are interesting? I mean, those that you mentioned, uh, well, I don't think that they're in particularly interesting because essentially Binance, let's say, it's just a promise of lower gas prices on the same technology. It's essentially a fork of Ethereum of like a year and a half ago with the replacement of a consensus to proof of stake, which is, again, it's, it's a good thing that they did it or proof of authority. I don't 
don't remember, but not proof of work, which is a good thing. Uh, but uh, and it's very centralized still. And uh, as soon as they became popular, gas prices on their system just skyrocketed as well. So, so it's. Uh, I think the the thing is that a lot of uh, blockchains they offer a very like or they promise a very fancy future, but the issue with them is that they nowhere near under load uh, that Ethereum is. Ethereum is at capacity for the last couple of years. Like always, no matter what we do to increase this capacity, it becomes at capacity like immediately. And that's why I have all these issues with like high gas prices because it's a after all it's like a it's a market. So you send your transaction and then you're competing with like, well, last time I looked at the transaction pool and Etherscan, it was, okay, it was a hundred thousand transactions waiting for execution there. So when you send your new transaction, like, sure, you have to wait for your turn or you have to offer a huge kind of a amount to the miner to include your one first. So other chains, they're usually nowhere near uh, at capacity right now, but there are some interesting chains anyway because there is like things like Phantom, for instance, that is used in some of the NFT and uh, indexes, and uh, they also work on semi decentralizing uh, like finances in in the Eastern markets. So it's it's also they work with regulations, the regulators and stuff. So there are other projects that are also very focused on some areas. Like there's like Celo that is focusing specifically on on Africa, and yeah, they try to build uh, some system that's very tied to to the African realities. So it's all there are interesting chains, and uh, I don't think it's well. I, so far, I don't think it's winner-takes-all, basically, market. I think there will be a majority player, <laughs> but then there will be a couple of niche players for some specific things, some for NFT, some for NFTs, some for some region, some for I don't know, gaming or something like this. And that's why I think like uh, the idea of uh, Layer 2 solutions uh, uh, was also very smart from, from the Ethereum side. So instead of trying to... Um, develop scalability on their own they just thought okay the future is this roll-up solutions or side chains and uh, then other companies can develop them <laughs> like we don't have to uh, develop it with our core teams because it's hard to play against everybody <laughs> when you're just one organization no matter how like talented yeah, it is uh, yeah so it's so that's that's another thing that i can see that there are like layer twos and there are lots of them when they use uh, layer one chain like Ethereum, uh, to, Ethereum basically will provide security for them, like security from the informational standpoint. So nobody can hack them that easily. But then the actual transactions will happen like outside of the Ethereum chain. Because again, it's always at capacity and we want more transactions and lower gas prices. All right, so the never ending scaling war, trying to yeah. scale as quickly and as good as possible. And you touched yeah. upon both layer two and side chains you mentioned there. Mm. Which one, uh, or if we start with a high level description of what is a side chain and what is a layer two. So if we start with a side chain, what is that? Yeah, well, well, basically it's uh, it's essentially uh, like another blockchain uh, that's uh, not always decentralized. 
and then what it does is it looks at uh, some smart contract at your parent chain and it can both read it and write to it uh, balances and stuff so what you do is you lock your money into this smart contract and sidechain figures out that the money is there and then uh, basically what it does is uh, it mirrors the state of this on, on the sidechain and then you can transfer very quickly a lot of time and then it's what, what it does is only submits uh, like final balance on back on the uh, back on the chain uh, it's like probably somewhat similar to lightning on, on BTC that's probably an example of a sidechain uh, and sidechains are usually for money transfers uh, so what, that's the difference between rollups and, and sidechains is that rollups are way more uh, related to the execution of smart contracts and, and rollups is the layer 2 right yeah, both uh, sidechains and rollups are layer twos uh, in, okay. in, in theory. Uh, but basically what rollup does, you also lock money in some smart contract and then they magically appear on this rollup because rollup knows uh, what's going on. And then uh, what it does is just groups transactions together. And then instead of sending uh, like five transactions or 500 transactions, it sends one very, very advanced transaction <laughs> to the chain uh, back to the like uh, ethereum chain and then this transaction can do a lot of things it can both call smart contracts on the layer one it can transfer money and can do it everything at once for a lot of users even though this transaction will be insanely expensive as it is it will be not not nearly as expensive as 600 separate transactions on the chain so that's why rollups are the more transactions you can bundle into them the more effective they are and there are quite a few companies who are working on those solutions there are different approaches to them and uh, i think that's uh, also a very plausible scenario that a lot of like companies will go and work with rollups so yeah and we see this already because somebody is working with uh, optimism already somebody is working with like companies like polygon somebody is uh using some some tech from starkware and yeah it's a, so as it's i understand a, it there the all the scaling solutions they are tied to ethereum and the reason is because of the security of the ethereum yep. network right mm -hmm. so you want to kind of uh, to, to ask for the truth the the best way to do that is to ask the ethereum network but then you do some kind of trade-off because you don't want to pay these extremely high mm -hmm. transaction fees so you kind of take yeah. your transactions off chain you're kind of mm -hmm. transacting in on another blockchain or through a roll-up and then it yeah. becomes much cheaper but at the same time you you do have some kind of security guarantee as the ethereum blockchain but it's not well, it's, it's not some kind of it's it's the same guarantee but later basically because uh what's what's going on with roll-ups is you it end, ends up still being a transaction on the mainnet uh and it's uh it just happens more rarely so it might be some in-between states that you are not sure, but the finality is still, we call it finality in the, in the Ethereum world or in the blockchain world. Uh, it still comes from the, uh, main, the main net of the Ethereum. So you essentially get the same security, but you sometimes need to wait, or you sometimes might need to wait for, let's say, well, while rollups are young, you can just, they might be like a couple of times a day when these transactions are reconciled. So you're like, uh, so your transaction will not be executed before uh like 
10 a.m. for instance today, even though you send it at 8. So it's, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I didn't know that aspect. Very interesting. So uh, let's move on then. Because, uh, mm -hmm. or, or the, the most popular, let's discuss the most popular solutions right now then. Because layer two, you have Arbitrum and Optimism coming. Arbitrum is already live, as I understand it. Yeah. And then there is another one that I don't know, I can't recall the name, CK something, I guess. CK yeah, Sync, yes. ZK Sync is, uh, I think it's also live, um, but it's it's centralized, but it's live. Uh, and and then, do you have do you have DeFi applications building on top of them already and giving cheaper fees to the user? For ZK Sync, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I tried their proof of concept, but that's it. Um, I'm not as heavy DeFi user as, as you might think. <laughs> I think like uh, Optimism and Arbitrum, there uh, there is already there is also uh, Loopring, uh, which is also providing this, and I think they also some DeFi works with it. But yeah, and there is also that's already an alpha of uh, what's it called Starknet from Starkware, which is also a zk uh, rollup. Uh, it's it's yeah basically getting launched uh, right now uh, into alpha and stuff so yeah there are lots of solutions uh, it's it's not as, as fast adoption um, of course because bigger players i mean when you have so much money locked in you are inherently cautious and nobody wants to be the first one to find some critical bug in, in this roll-up system even though they are tested well and i know that people are taking it very seriously but still not, nothing could be like perfect so it still takes time so maybe some smaller players start first i know that uniswap wanted to launch with optimism like uh, from the get-go uniswap version 3 not sure where they are right now. I think it was delayed at some point, and then I just lost track. <laughs> I think they did some vote on on deploying on Arbitrum, mm. and I, I think it went through. I think like barely any votes against it. So <laughs> oh, I guess everyone is super excited about the rollups coming out. And um, the side chain, I know Polygon is the most popular there, and uh, yeah. I see the volume of, of other decentralized exchanges such as. SushiSwap is kind of bigger. The volume is higher there on the, on the sidechain Polygon than in than it is on Ethereum, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it is. But you want like especially things like uh, exchanges. Uh, it's very quickly uh, it becomes pointless to trade there if the gas prices are high enough because you just <laughs> all your benefits has been eaten by by the gas prices and. I can totally see how that's that's basically number one. If you want to do something like yield farming or long-term investments or something like this, that is, it's not that bad because you'll probably uh, get this money back if you lock it for long enough. But yeah. where isn't it dangerous then? Where is the security going if you take away all the fees on the base layer? So if the rollups and especially the side chains, if they take all the volume, what will happen with the security of the base layer? Because security is tied to to the amount of miners or valid validators on the base chain as i understand it yeah it's uh, it, it does but uh, you see like even though in SushiSwap, in polygon you see that there's a lot of money trading on polygon on the side chain uh, ethereum is still at capacity <laughs> so i think we are nowhere near the question that oh ethereum is empty now so what what are we going to do 
And also security is basically, uh, it's uh, inherently, like in proof of work and proof of stake, it's based on the price of the main asset. Uh, it's not as much of a, like in gas fees only. And of course, this transaction that they both side chains and and uh, uh, rollups do to reconcile, those are very expensive transactions. So there's still a lot of gas use. There's still lots of fees <clears throat> being there. And yeah, it's. Uh, I think security. I don't. I don't see it's that much compromised. To be honest, it feels like rollups, especially, they are a win-win for the Ethereum blockchain. If yeah, I think it's uh, better because uh, rollup is a rollup essentially, and sidechain could at some point if enough people using it they you can you can try to undock it at some point and try to make it a just a blockchain but yeah uh, i haven't seen the successful experiments of this yeah it's very exciting and i see like the some kind of um i don't know what word i should use here but you have if transaction fees are are pretty low on the ethereum network then mm-hmm. the, the traffic will go there but Eventually, yeah. when they will be a bit higher, then naturally people will drop off to the rollups or even the side chains, and the yeah. fees will lower on the Ethereum blockchain again, and then people will go back there. So it would probably find some kind of equilibrium uh, with the transaction fees. Where yeah, where... and it depends on how many transactions the mainnet will be able to to get per per second. It's also because again, I think uh, the current amount is like like we need like orders and orders of magnitude more than, than now. Yeah. All right. Very interesting discussion here. Um, I want to go into another topic now, which is mm-hmm. Ethereum 2.0. For you who don't know, uh, Ethereum that we have now is going on a wild ride, one can say, because they are evolving or Ethereum is evolving from mm-hmm. a chain that is using proof of work to reach consensus to a chain that is using proof of stake. Mm-hmm. And they are also going to implement sharding, which basically breaks up the Ethereum blockchain into 64 shards or something, if I'm correct. I don't, mm, I don't know exactly. I think that was the idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, these events, they haven't happened yet, so they will happen. And let's start by explaining like proof of work to proof of stake. What does that really mean for the Ethereum blockchain? Yeah, so I would say that's just in general those parts. Uh, right now, we're talking about Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2. I don't think it's uh, even correct to t- talk about this in, in like this right now because with the current changes in, in kind of a direction, I think uh, like yeah, the foundation and, and Ethereum maintainers are more steering towards gradually merging the chains. Uh, so it's like it's instead of just uh, having Ethereum 2 that has all the nice features and then migrating users, we're just slowly just uh, like adding features to Ethereum 1, like in conjunction with Ethereum 2 teams. Uh, so yeah, starting with proof of work versus proof of stake. Uh, myself, I'm not a huge fan of proof of work uh, as well. It's uh, basically proof of work is how you uh, secure the network so to 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 be able to produce a block you kind of have this like a race for producing a new block and this new block should uh, have some certain condition met conditions met and one of the conditions is that certain hash should be of the certain like uh, basically of the certain format and uh, there is only way one way of generating a hash like this is to guess (laughs) 
So you need to very quickly guess uh, a lot of times the hash and check if it fits the the conditions or not. And that way you kind of... You should basically get below a threshold with the hash. Yeah, yes, yes. In technical, it's a, that it should have uh, this many zeros in front. <laughs> okay. uh, and since the hash is a value that uh, fluctuates, fluctuates randomly based on what you do with the, uh, with the thing, uh, this thing is, is not easy to achieve, so you need to do a certain amount of iterations on your uh, CPU or GPU to find this thing and then publish it as soon as possible because the one who publishes it first uh, likely will get all the benefits. Uh, and that's the way of how it ma makes it very hard to change the history of the blockchain far in the past because not only you need to change the block in the past, but you also need to be able to find appropriate hashes for all the blocks in the future as well. Like uh, if, if let's say uh, we have a blockchain of like 100 blocks just for simplicity and you want to ch change the block number 50, then you need to guess 50 hashes before everyone else gets one hash. So it's a losing game basically to play. And that's based on the just the computer uh, specifics that computer cannot guess these hashes fast enough. It just, yeah, it's random guessing. Uh, proof of stake is a little bit different. In proof of stake, there is no race. Uh, so for each block, uh, a proposer is chosen specifically. So and it's uh, built in into the uh, algorithm of the chain. So everybody knows who the proposal proposer is for this next block. And this proposer has a chance to produce a block without uh, really uh, solving this hash puzzle and trying to guess the hash. So it just creates a block. And then apart from the proposal, from all the people who are participating in the staking, uh, like the network picks uh, in Ethereum case about 256, uh, they call it a, a, test, a testant committee, I think. And, and they need to validate this block that it's actually this person doesn't do anything malicious, doesn't steal anything. And then they stamp their seal of, of approval. And then you need from this uh, kind of committee, you need more than 50% of them, I think, to agree that this block is valid for it to be added to the chain. And of course, if you just put it this way, uh, if there is no punishment for for producing wrong blocks, nobody like uh, nobody stops you of trying of doing this. It might be just pointless, but it won't hurt you. That's why we get into staking. That's why you need to stake a certain amount of asset. So if you produce the block that was malicious, a part of your asset will go away and at some point you will just drain your uh, money. So it's a purely economical thing and it's uh, based on the price of the, the, how precious the ETH is. So basically what you need to do right now to become, like to, to have a chance to become validator, to have a chance to propose block, uh, you need to stake 32 ETH, which is not a small amount right now. <laughs> I think one ETH is about 2,000 euros. So you can calculate how much is that uh, and uh, basically yeah and then you you are participating in this game you get registered and then at some point you will get a chance to uh, to propose a block so it's uh, this system is uh, it doesn't require that much CPU power it doesn't require that much electricity what it might require is a maybe a decent internet connection but then theoretically you can run a proposer again on the Raspberry Pi it's mm -hmm. not unheard of I hear a lot of concerns regarding the way proof of stake works in terms 
first and foremost, proof of work has been live ever since Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It has been battle tested for 12 years now. Proof of stake hasn't been tested that no. long. It's been tested on, on less successful chains, so to say. Uh, mm -hmm. That is, of course, a risk. But the biggest risk or the biggest in incentive to be a validator in a proof of stake system is to earn money, right? Of yep. course, in, in every, in every, even in proof of work, it's the same, but proof of stake is built to make the rich richer. That is one concern I hear mm -hmm. because the more ether, the more ether you got, the more you can stake and the more you can stake, the bigger uh, probability you have to be a validator validator. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but is it any different for, from uh, proof of work? The more GPUs or the more ASICs you can have for Bitcoin, the more money you have, the more chance you have to actually mine the, mine the block. And it's, uh, I don't think it's any way different. If anything, it's easier to to get 32 ETH than to get a, an actual physical building connected to some power plant <laughs> with cooling and stuff uh, built. Uh, mm. uh, then, yeah, it, it's, it's, and then, uh, of course, it's even hard to get the devices themselves. That is why I was very surprised. I heard that there is a shortage on the market of these uh, devices. So it's, it costs a lot of money to get the, the ASICs to mine Bitcoin, for instance, specifically. So it's still rich gets richer. I think uh, something that will democratize it a little bit is, of course, things like decentralized staking pools. Uh, it's basically, there are some people who have ETH, but not enough ETH to stake. And there are, let's say, other people who can, let's say, run hardware, but they don't have any ETH to stake. And so there are system, I, I forgot what, what the, the name was. There was some interesting pool idea that they essentially to meet those people together. And so they're like, let's say, 32 people, each one staking one ETH, still not a not a small amount, but not a crazy amount. And then they create one validator. And this one validator is run by another guy somewhere else. And then they basically split the reward uh, together. But of course, like the more money you have, the more you will get. That's kind of... A... Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I heard this argument regarding the proof of work. Uh, you've probably heard this before, but it was something along these lines that, uh, you know, the proof of work, the ASICs that you use in Bitcoin, for example, mm -hmm. they only are good for approximately one and a half year before they become unprofitable, as I've heard. Mm -hmm. Then you have to switch them out. So you have to basically like splash the cash. You have to put up new capital, right, to buy. Mm -hmm. At the same time, in a proof of work system, you also have to spend electricity. So there is a cost, just like yeah, it was a cost for digging gold from the ground. Mm -hmm. You have to pay electricity bills to mine mm -hmm. Bitcoin. So you have to, to, to kind of get rid of something valuable and pay for it, the energy, in order to participate and in, in order to stand a chance to win those precious Bitcoins. Yep. And after you've won those Bitcoins, you also have to kind of, if, if you're going to have an operations there, you have electricity bills to pay. So you have to kind of dis distribute these Bitcoins. You have to put them on the market because you have to pay, you need fiat or something, or you need to pay mm -hmm. it to someone else. So in that sense, the distribution of Bitcoin is likely to be more decentralized than a proof of stake system where there is basically no external cost except from I'm going to buy, I'm going to go and buy Ethereum from Ether from an exchange, get mm -hmm. them, put them into a staking contract. And I have no external cost. I can just put them there and, and it's like interest. <laughs> it's yeah, it is. It is interest actually. It's, it's more like a 
you're making a work uh, and then uh, you remember that used to be this uh, like in the 90s probably there used to be this services you could install on your computer and it was like doing some scientific things and you get compensated like a pennies for that so it's essentially it's it's the same you rent enough now yeah. your computing power and you protect the network and you get a fee for that and uh, i'm not sure if i'm buying this argument that's just because you have to sell your bitcoins to pay for the electricity it's somehow more decentralized. Uh, I don't see the connection. It's just I'm pretty sure that right now those who can afford to mine, they just uh, they keep the bitcoins to themselves and just pay the electricity because they have money to pay for the electricity. But uh, yeah, I, I I think it's a little bit of a you can think about the logical uh, like chain there, but it's a very very big stretch. <laughs> To, to do that it's not obvious at all it's like oh we just launched a new like wind factory wind power plant and that's by, why bitcoin is or proof of work is green like yeah sure like for this one maybe but like there's like 500 coal mines <laughs> or coal, coal power plants that are running uh, because of that so yeah that, that's interesting and i i see your point also it's much easier to if I, if I acquire an Ether, for example, I can become a validator and stand a chance to, to earn some Ether as well. However, I, I think it's... You stand a chance. It's like, uh, basically, this is a mathematical probability. It has nothing to do with, uh, like, uh, basically, it's... Uh, you will be <laughs> called at some point in time, uh, essentially, to propose a block or to validate a block. Both of them, them are rewarding operations. It's... Uh, just uh, in the Bitcoin, it's pure race. So if you have a worse internet connection, then you might lose <laughs> always, even though you're mining those blocks uh, at, at the time. And then here, it's you don't need to upgrade anything. You will, like, it's, yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, should we move on to the next and, and final topic I want to bring up today and, and yeah. learn a bit more? Because I don't really understand how this is going to play out. And maybe you do. Let's see. Sharding. Ethereum blockchain is going to split into 64 shards. What yep. is going on? What will happen and, and how will it happen? Oh, that's a that's a good question because I think there is not that many people who know how it's going to happen because this is one of the parts of the Ethereum 2.0 that was a little bit of... Uh, it's not a postponed per se, but it's not a current focus. So the current focus, just to say, because I want to need to mention this, it won't be a full uh, picture, because we are taking the proof of stake and we are mo moving ETH 1.0 to proof of stake without waiting for ETH 2.0. And the project is called the merge. And uh, so far, everybody thinks uh, that's going to happen late this year or in the, the next year, the latest, of course, with Everybody is trying to be very careful. And I've been in this working group for, for a little bit uh, about not basically putting any anybody's funds at risk or anything. So, and not holding the network for any time and uh, stuff like this. But basically there are already some prototypes and testing is going on, on how do we move the current Ethereum into the proof of stake using the, the technology that was built for two is two. So that's, the main focus and so far the answer to scalability is as, as of roll-ups uh, is our way uh sharding though it's it's another concept that came from there it's like yeah there are 64 shards and the beacon chain and the beacon chain is something that's already live and this already is, is having a proof of uh basically proof of stake algorithm it builds it basically builds blocks and stuff 
So but then I understand it, the beacon chain is running alongside the Ethereum, like the real blockchain that is, or both yeah. are right now, right? But Ethereum 1 that we are used to, it's running. Yeah, we can call it like mainnet for Ethereum 1 and beacon chain for Ethereum 2, yeah. Ah, okay, yeah. So, so, so yeah, that's true. It's it's running alongside. It's it's a different software, uh, but it's basically producing empty blocks right now uh, because there are no transactions there. Uh, but what will happen is that uh, ETH one chain will be controlled by the beacon chain, if you want. So transactions, execution, and state management and stuff is still stays on is one chain but it's one chain becomes completely passive and is being controlled by is two chain and all the consensus and proposing and validating will happen there and mining will just be disabled basically so nobody can do that but for sharding again there was a couple of ideas about sharding about how exactly that should work uh how many of these shards should actually have smart contracts on them and how many of them should have just the data and the biggest idea about sharding is that or two biggest ideas. One is uh, it's very simple. You need to store, even for an archival node, 64 times less data <laughs> because you will only store a single shard, most likely, on your uh, network. And then uh, the second idea was that it also allows operations within a single shard to be faster uh, because uh, it just essentially, it's it's a little bit similar to like a roll-up because the operations happen there, but they're, they're getting reconciled into the beacon chain. And I'm being very, very vague right now because it's still it was a lot of discussions about should we allow like let's say smart contracts or shards, how they should communicate. It's all still is not decided yet. I think the latest proposal that was kind of basically a trade off that. Uh, of course, shards would be just to store data from smart contracts, but they won't execute anything. But that means that I'm not sure if the throughput of network will increase that much, but it definitely will make it the nodes lighter to run because you don't need all the shards. So it's so it's a little bit of a vague topic because uh, it's uh, it's not actively in development, especially in right now. The whole focus is on the rollups and uh, on the proof of stake. So if, if I run a node then in this shard, yeah. do I also have to run the beacon chain node and validate the main chain, or am I only going to validate one of the shards? The answer is we don't know yet <laughs> because it wasn't specified. There is no specifications for for sharding. For, let's say, the merge of and the proof of stake, I could talk more or less specifically because there are actual specs and some they are already implemented or being implemented. But for sharding, is more or less high-level ideas about, oh, we'll store data on this shard, like, but no specifics about which exact data, what do you need to, to, to run this. So it's it's too early, basically. And I think sharding will only start, like, or they the guys uh, also wanted, they have a very, like, successful uh, hackathon for, for a month, basically, on the moving Ethereum one to, into the proof of stake. So they are planning to have a similar hackathon also for a month, maybe in the fall about sharding. So to actually come up with the actual specs <laughs> about actual details, because right now, again, it's it's a little bit too, everybody thinks uh, its own thing when, when talking about sharding. Some people get overly excited and just telling that it will solve all the issues, but uh, I, it, it's not specific enough yet for me to tell anything. 
So I have uh, Ruben Sonsen, one of my teachers. I always say that I, I learned so much from him. Uh, he said to me that sharding is breaking the fundamentals of what a blockchain is. Do you agree with that? Uh, that's that's a good question. I'm I'm not sure. I, I still think that the blockchain shouldn't stand by itself, and we shouldn't try to. My analogy: we don't run all the internet on everybody's computer. We still have access to some parts of it and stuff like this. So it, it will be a layered cake. And I, I, I truly believe that we have a, like high security guarantees for bigger transfers and maybe uh, a little bit of delayed security guarantees for like quick operations, uh, but make them fast actually. And then there could be a layers because even with Visa card, like it, it doesn't approve every chewing gum that you're buying uh, in, in the store. It, it has this light version that it does, doesn't talk to the server un, until after. So I think it's a pretty standard way. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, do you have any other topic that you feel that we should talk about? No, I think uh, we like our in uh, we can. Yeah. No, I, I don't think for the, for today it's. Uh, I think it's enough for for the people. Yeah, I think we should we should do a follow up here in the in the near future when things settle with the maybe the sharding and even the proof of stake and see how it plays out. It's very yeah, exciting. it'd be super interesting. I mean, we we could of course do a follow up after the London hard fork with the EIP one five five nine and what would happen after that because that would have implications. But uh, so far, it's very hard to say which. Uh, and for those who probably most of you didn't hear, haven't heard about uh, 1559, it's when instead of just giving all the transaction fees to a miner, you burn a part of it. Uh, it has that's... lots of interesting effects down the, the pipe, so to say. I mean, it puts like deflationary pressure on Ether, on Ether the asset itself. And yeah. deflationary pressure you've seen in Bitcoin, it has basically pumped the price. and. I mean, that's what ultrasound money as the Ethereum community talk about now. That's yeah. I, I'm not the... saying that I'm a huge fan of this uh, particular <laughs> uh, narrative, uh, to be honest. And uh, I know that there are, for instance, again, if we if we actually go a little bit in, into this route, uh, I would say that uh, there are some conflicting sides, uh, of course, uh, with this. Because one side is if you just hold ETH, like store of value, uh, you want the price to be as high as possible, right? But if you actually use DeFi services, then it's not that thing you want. You want its price to be reasonable for the network security, but not higher than that. And that's the big issue. If you pump the price 10 times, and even if gas fees will drop 10 times, you will still have to pay the same essentially amount in fiat for the gas fees. So it's a, it's a tricky balance to to have. So, yeah. It would be very interesting to pick your brain on that topic as well. Maybe we can have a another session talking about that. But until yeah, then, sure. until yeah. then, uh, where where do they find you, Igor? You're on Twitter, or I think Twitter is the best uh, way of uh, reaching out. I'm not super active there, but yeah. Feel oh, that's free awesome. To say hi. That's awesome. All right, Igor. I guess that's all for this time, then. Thank you so much for yeah. this. Thank you. That's some valuable stuff right there. What did you make out of this episode? 
all this DeFi talk makes me overly excited. But at the same time, I do see the challenges that need to be solved if DeFi is going to be successfully built on Ethereum in the future as well. As Igor mentioned, the demand for block space in Ethereum is crazy and pushes up the transaction costs. It reminds me of the bull market back in 2017 where CryptoKitties clogged the network and made it extremely expensive to do a transaction on the Ethereum network. However, Igor brings up how second layer solutions and sidechains can help reduce the crazy demand for Ethereum block space and make it much cheaper for a user to interact with these DeFi applications. I mean, paying hundreds of dollars for a single transaction might make sense for a few use cases, but to make it the new internet of value that you and me are using, then it needs to be much cheaper. I've seen sidechains such as Polygon getting lots of traction and it actually provides an environment with low fees as well, which is the perfect environment for doing DeFi. However, what happens when the block space on the sidechain gets full? Then fees will rise there as well, I guess. But as Igor said, we might be in for a multi-chain world where, where different use cases use different blockchains. Only time will tell. And until then, make sure to subscribe to the Greater Finance Podcast. We've got some really cool episodes coming up. Both a bit more technical ones where we deep dive in a specific subject, but also the more general ones. So uh, make sure to follow Igor now on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Mandrigin, at M-A-N-D-R-I-G-I-N. All right. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you in the next episode.